If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Amos, Amos chapter 5, We're looking at verses 1 to 17 today. Rather than doing uh, kind of a, a big Bible reading up front, we're going to read a little bit as we, as we go along. So uh, just keep your copy of the Scripture open to um, the book of Amos, and we'll work our way through uh, kind of the first half of uh, Amos chapter 5. We're talking about a call to repentance. Now, repentance is more than just uh, an acknowledgement of our wrong or saying we're sorry for that, but it's a willingness to and a commitment to be intentional about turning away from that. And the idea of repentance uh, before God is the idea that we recognize the wrong that we have done or how we're living that's away from God, and we make a commitment to not only say we're sorry and ask for forgiveness, but to, to turn away from that sin and to turn and to follow God. This is part of that series on Amos that we've been working our way through. Uh, hopefully you've been with us each of these weeks or you've been listening and reading through the book of Amos because of some great challenges for us as a church. I know personally I've found a lot of these passages challenging as God has been challenging me each week to challenge you as the, the church. There's some great stuff in here for us. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, go back and read through Amos 1 through 4. Uh, and take your time with it because there, there are some great challenges that God wants us to pick up. Challenges not only for uh, the people of Israel, but challenges for uh, us as the church here at Lakes in 2016. Today is a, another challenging passage because God pronounces really the death of His people, Israel. And there's a several passages in these few small verses which is God mourning and grieving the loss of the imminent loss of the people who he loves, who have turned away from him and chosen not to follow him. Yet in the middle of God pronouncing the imminent death of his people, we'll see love and grace in the heart of God. And we'll get back to that a bit later on. But you'll see through all this all God's love. And God's grace. Now, have you ever really mourned? I mean, just that sort of unrestrained sobbing? Now, I'm typically not a crier. Um, my wife used to get annoyed me because I, I never cry. She goes, you didn't cry at the birth of our kids? You didn't cry at our marriage? I just don't cry. Now, it's not because I don't have any feelings. I do have a heart uh, in there somewhere. I just don't cry. I could probably count on my two hands, maybe even one hand, uh, the, the number of times that I've cried my entire life. I just don't cry. Now, except I remember uh, the one time I cried the most was um, about my papal. Now, my papal was my best friend growing up. This is my, my dad's dad, and I grew up on a, a farm in a, a neighboring house to him. And every day when I come home from school, my papa would be sitting along the, the pond on the farm with two old cane fishing poles, uh, one for him and one for me. And I would drop my school bag and I would run down to the pond and meet papa down there and we would just sit for a few hours fishing. I wanted to sit and chat, but papa always told me that if you talk too much, it'll scare the fish away. <laughs> now I just know he's a, he's a pretty wise old man, I think, and he just wanted to keep me quiet. Um, but we would sit there together and, uh, and spend time together. And I, I loved 
uh, my papa. And every day we would, uh, we would sit and we would fish and then we would clean the fish and we would, I would actually get to talk during that time and we would talk together. Um, and growing up, um, I mean, other than the little schoolmates playing with, Papa was my best friend. And I, I remember talking to my mom and saying, oh, Papa was always going to be around, right? And she tried to explain to me, oh, not always. And I thought, okay, okay, everyone's always around. Like, that's just how it works. Um, but... When I was nine, nine years of age, I remember having to say goodbye to the man who I dearly love, because uh, one Sunday morning he, he had a heart attack and he, he passed away. And in America, I know you, you guys don't understand this, it's just kind of how I was growing up doing funerals, but um, in America there's often an, an open viewing uh, the night before the funeral in which all the community come in and there's an open casket um, and that they can see the, the body there, and people come up and they offer uh, their condolences to the family. And I remember when I walked up uh, as a nine-year-old boy, and I remember seeing my papa lying there, and realizing, even seeing him, that he just wasn't there anymore. And knowing that he was in heaven, but knowing how much I missed him, and I just stood there and stared for the longest time. And finally this little lady from our church family who was my Sunday school teacher, she walked up to me and she said, put her arms around me and she said, Mike, you know it's okay to cry, don't you? She said, even boys can cry. Just let it out. Now I'm sure after that she wished she had never said that. <laughs> because I started crying and then I started sobbing and then I fell to the ground and was kind of wailing, crying. And my family couldn't only control me and had to kind of take me to the side uh, to another room to kind of regain my composure. And um, all the grief I'd been feeling just kind of came out and it came pouring out. Well, today's passage begins with God crying for his people. And he cried, this passage is actually saying it's a lament as, as if they were dead and begins in... In Amos chapter 5, verse 1 to 3, it says this. Hear this word, Israel. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again. Deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will, only, will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong We'll have only ten left. Now, the Hebrew in which this starts makes it clear that this is Yahweh, God himself, who is talking, not, not Amos. This message is not uh, just Amos saying, oh, the Lord is going to be sorry that you're going to be destroyed for your sin. This is God himself saying, I lament, I grieve, and I mourn concerning you, Israel, who are dead because of your sin, or the imminent death which is on them. He already is grieving and mourning. Now, this is not just a, a crime because of their mistakes. It's a, a grieving over the, the death of his people because of their sin. In verse 2, he calls them uh, virgin Israel, the whole people of God, because they still have yet to fulfill the, the purpose that God had planned for them. 
and yet they will die unfulfilled or having unfulfilled God's plan. It's like mourning the loss of, uh, of a young one with such promise and a future ahead. God mourns because He loves. God mourns because His purpose for His people was unfulfilled and God responds here to the sin of the people in the same way that He responds throughout the Bible, not in, in anger and in wrath, but in grief and in tears. God is a God of justice, but He's also a God with a heart full of love. And I don't know about you, but as I, I, I've read through this passage over and over again during the week, I'm just blown away that the sin that we do as His people doesn't just upset Him. He's not like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. It grieves His heart. He mourns because He knows that sin has consequence. And He knows that we're going to have to struggle and suffer. And if we'd only just follow His way, there's so much blessing and there's so much peace. And He knows that sin ultimately leads to death and separation from Him. And He longs for everyone to have life and hope and freedom. And God calls His people, Israel here, to repentance. He sees that they're about to, to die because of sin and He grieves this and He mourns this. And then in verse 4 to 6, it says this, This is what the Lord says to Israel, Seek Me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile, and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them, and Bethel will have no one to quench him. Now, here he says, go to Gilgal and go to Bethel. These are also mentioned in chapter 4, if you remember. There are different cities and, and places of worship throughout uh, the kingdoms of Israel that had become places of cultic worship. And it's as if God is saying to His people, His dearly loved people who are supposed to be worshiping Him and following Him, you just go and keep on praying to your false gods. Keep on following your religious practices, which are worthless, and you will find that it will only lead to death. It will only lead to destruction. Here in chapter 5, uh, Beersheba is, is added to that. Now Beersheba was... Uh, originally the, the worship place of some of the, the great patriarchs like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but it became a place in the southern kingdom that uh, the people from the northern kingdom journeyed to, a pilgrimage that they journeyed to uh, join into some of the cultic worship in the area. And so he adds that to the list and says, go on with everybody else, journey to Beersheba, follow these false gods, follow this false teaching, but it will only lead to death. Follow me and live. Worship me and me only and there's life. Anything outside of that leads to death and destruction. And in verse 6 he says, I will sweep through all of Israel, the, the house of Joseph, like an all-consuming fire. Now all throughout the Bible, God in His power and even His love is known as, as an all-consuming fire. We see that in, in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24 uh, chapter 9, verse 3, Isaiah, uh, chapter 33, verse 14 says, God is like an all-consuming fire. Even in the New Testament in uh, 2 Thessalonians, 
1.7 and Hebrews 10.27. It talks about the power and majesty of God. It's like an all-consuming fire. There's nothing that can escape it. And God says, I will sweep through the people because of their sin. I will sweep through the nation of Israel and no one will escape. Again, before, if an army thinks they're going to go out a thousand strong, they'll only come back with a hundred. If they think then, well, we still got a hundred and we'll go up against the enemies, they'll come back with only ten. There's nothing you can do to stand against the armies that are going to invade because God is with these invading armies because of your sin. Worship God only. He calls them to repent and He calls them to turn back to Him with their worship, to turn back to Him and to seek Him and live. Now verses 7 to, 4, uh, 7 to 13 start talking about some of the sin that was happening in the area. And, and much of this is, is similar to uh, our preceding chapters. A, a big theme of, of injustice. But it goes a bit further in, uh, in verses 7 to 13 to talk about how not only is injustice what prevails, but the righteous uh, seemingly are silenced. And so the, there are those still in Israel who are trying to do the right thing, but there's a sinful majority in the community that overcomes them. And so look with me in uh, verses 7 to 13. It says this, There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you'll never live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you'll not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent will keep quiet in such times, for these times are evil. The people at this time in Israel were not only doing what is wrong, and especially specifically here in the courts, the elders of the community were the ones who, who led the Jewish court and the ones who were supposed to be promoting what, what God says is right as right and what God says is wrong as wrong. But these elders in the, the church, these elders in the community, in the Jewish community, instead were taking bribes. Uh, they were doing things uh, incorrectly and unjustly. They were oppressing the poor who they're supposed to be helping, adding extra taxes on those who are, they're supposed to be alleviating their burdens. But they're not only doing what is wrong, but they started making right look wrong. Does that make sense? It's hard to imagine a time... If I look at this, you think, well, it's hard to imagine a time in which the right way or what we've always known as the right way we would start thinking is the wrong way. Or we would start believing by society's pressure that that's no longer the case anymore. But that's exactly what was happening in Israel. Society 
made a mockery of God's ways. The people of God, the people who were supposed to be following God's ways, made a mockery not only in the courts, but in society of God's ways. And what God said was right was no longer right. It was questionable. And the, the media of the day and the, the courts and the businesses went about making the right look wrong and celebrating injustices, celebrating poor business practices, celebrating the deceits in the, the courts, celebrating the injustices. And says, you have become a people who hate the one who's trying to do right. You've been a people, you become a people who hate the man who tries to stand for justice. And even those who start to stand in righteousness are quieted and their voices are lost in the crowd on that day because these days are evil. Now, as I've read this passage many times through the week, I would love to say, this is something that only happened in the time of Israel, in a time that Amos was talking to the people, in a time in which God was challenging the people through Amos. But as I've read this passage over and over and over again this week, I just keep on seeing us. I keep on seeing our society. I keep on seeing 2016, 2017, and think, where have we become, even as a people of God, those who are supposed to be standing for Justice, those who are supposed to be leading in God's grace have become corrupted by the society around us, have been pressured by the, the media influences around us that we are supposed to talk a certain way and we're supposed to believe a certain way. And it doesn't matter what God says is right or what God says is wrong. It doesn't matter what God says we are supposed to, how God says we're supposed to live. It only matters in how we're working our way according to society's pressures. This reminds me, this, this, the righteous voices it mentions here in this passage who are drowned out by the angry, sinful mob. It reminds me of the, uh, the speaker who, who cannot deliver a message anymore because of the, the politically correct uh, movement. On, uh, it used to just be on university campuses, but now uh, it's kind of everywhere. Now, there's... I'm not against being uh, gracious to people. I'm not against being uh, inclusive and caring for people. But I am one who probably thinks we've gone a bit PC mad. And it has become, it started out as something that says, you can't say that because it might offend someone. And that's fair enough. But it has become a movement in the last few decades which suppresses the just voices. It has become a movement sometimes in, 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 uh, in campuses across universities, uh, across our Western world, and even in churches in which they say, you, you have to watch what you say. So much so that I remember growing up in the United States and every single basketball game we had, our whole team stood right there on the court and we prayed before the game. We stood in our locker room first and we would pray as a team. We would get out and we would pray and start the game. Someone would stand with a microphone after we'd sing the, the, pledge of, uh, sing the national anthem and someone would pray for our games and pray for the safety of those there. 
I remember every single graduation in high school, someone would pray for our graduates. And then by the time I was graduating high school, now this is back in 1993, no one was allowed to pray at any basketball game. No one was allowed to even mention the word God at a graduation because it might offend someone. And we, as Americans who had grown up in, in a Christian nation that was founded, uh, even its constitution based on what is right and wrong according to the Word of God, had become a place, even decades ago now, where the Word of God and even the name God could not be mentioned. What is right and what should be spoken, people were afraid to speak out because the pressures of society had said that was no longer acceptable. We see today, every day, we see educated influences who are silenced because they don't follow certain party lines or because the voice is against the social majority or the, the media hype or whatever they might be. It's easy for us as a church to read through chapter 5 or 7 to 13 and say, that's good for them. That was a long time ago. Sorry that they were such sinful people. Sorry that they had gone so far away from God. They should have known better. And leave it at that. But what God wants us to do, the reason it's still in our Bible today, the reason He's given it to us as a church, is that we still need to be challenged with it today. We still need to go, you know what? That could be me. I could fall from, by society's pressures. I could be led away from God's ways. By society's pressures and by the way the community is going, I could be starting to follow them rather than following God. I could be the one who is silenced by the majority and no longer standing for what is right. And so I need to watch it. God says, here is the, the sin that the people are doing. Here are some of the things that they need to be challenged with. And then in verse 14 and 15, what does he do again? He calls them to repentance. Verse 14 and 15 says this, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you, just as you say He is. Hate evil and love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. In verse 4 to 5, you remember God calls people to return to Him in worship. To turn back from all these false gods and these false religions and the pr fake practices of religion and have a relationship with Him. In verse 14 and 15, after He describes a lot of the sins of the people and how they've fallen and, and how they've gone away from Him, He calls them again to return to Him, to repent and to acknowledge the wrong that they've done and to turn and follow Him. This time not talking about worship, but talking about in the courts and in society, in the way that they govern and in the way that they practice life to let justice prevail let honesty reign in society rather than being like that like they were in verses 7 to 13 treating those that they're supposed to be caring for unjustly start caring for the orphans and the widows start caring for those who cannot look after themselves those who need a helping hand love mercy and start showing them as a church start showing them that helping hand, start caring for them. Verse 16 and 17 goes back to the beginning of this chapter in which God is talking to Israel who is gone, who is, is dead. 
because of their sin. And he says, if you don't turn back to me, if you don't return, repent, then this is where things are going. And it breaks his heart. Because God loves people. God loves even us, sinful people. And he longs to have nothing more than to have that fellowship with us and, and that relationship with us and to lead us in, in peace and grace and for us to have eternal life. And yet he recognizes that the sin of the people here, Israel, that he's talking to, is leading them to death. And he grieves and he mourns at that loss. Verse 16 says, Therefore this is what the Lord says, The Lord God Almighty says, There will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmer will be summoned, summoned, sorry, the farmer will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through the, your midst, says the Lord. Now, I know all of you know I grew up in that small little town in the hills of Kentucky. And I grew up in that day, and as many of you did, in which if there was a funeral procession that you saw coming down the street, every car on every road would pull to the side of the road and wait in silence for them to pass. Today, if we think of uh, a funeral, maybe you think of a small group of family and friends all wearing black clothes and crying because of the loss of one that they've loved so greatly. In the Hebrew tradition, what they often did was they had professional mourners. They had people that, so that you would... They thought in order to honor someone who has passed, you need to really grieve and you need to really mourn. So even if you only had a small family, you would hire people who would walk along behind the casket and would cry and would mourn and would weep and would wail. They had professional mourners. Now, I wouldn't be good at that because I can't cry. Maybe I could, I could mourn and I could weep and yell, but um, some of you, you're criers. You go, I'm there. I can get paid for this. I didn't know this was a profession. Well, in the Hebrew tradition, that was their profession. They would hire out mourners. But here he actually says the significance in, in verse 16 of saying the farmers will be summoned to weep. He's saying here, there's actually going to be so much death and so much destruction, such a total wipeout that, that all the professional mourners won't even be enough. They'll have to call the farmers to join in with the crying. The mourning and the, the wailing... This uncontrollable sorrow is not just from the people because of death. It's, it's from God because of the loss of those that he's loved. You see, God doesn't want any to perish, but he wants all to have eternal life. God's plan is for life, not death, of his children. He loves you and he loves me. He loves the people of Israel. His plan was to see them share that love and grace with others. His plan is to see them rise as a great nation and show His majesty and His power and His grace and love. But they turned away from Him and started responding unjustly when He is leading them in justice. They started worshiping false gods and turning away from Him. And He calls them. He, he, all this passage is about calling them to repentance. And saying, I want you to change. I want you to turn back to me in your worship. I want you to turn back to me in your courts and your government. I want you to turn back to me in society and the way you live so you can have life. 
And God Himself, the Creator of this universe, loves His people so much that He mourns and He weeps and He wails for those who do not turn to Him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, God is not slack concerning His promises. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all might have eternal life. John 3.16, the great verse that says, For God so loved the world, in fact, He loved the world so much that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, in death, so that anyone who believes in Him doesn't have to perish, but can have eternal life. Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Remember that at that time, before salvation in Christ, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You know, that's a beautiful passage to me because it links us in with this nation of Israel that was struggling so much. They had a purpose and they had a plan and they failed at that miserably. And God actually says in the New Testament, He allows any who choose to follow Him to, to join into that family of the people of Israel. The covenants He made with the people of Israel that says He will be their God, as they will be His people. He will look after them and He will bless those who, who, um, who they bless and He will curse those who they curse. He will care for them and He will provide for them and He will love them. Those sort of covenants that we think, well, that was just for them. No, the, the New Testament says, no, that's for us. Any who trust in Jesus, any who believe in Him, we, without Jesus, were outside of that. We were foreigners to those covenants. We, we couldn't have citizenship in Israel. We weren't God's people, so to speak. But in Christ Jesus, He paid the price for our sin. That death that we deserve, that death that God mourns for those who do not follow Him, that doesn't have to be our fate. Because Jesus Christ Himself, God's Son, paid that price on the cross. He died. Jesus, God's Son, God in flesh, died on the cross so that we don't have to. He paid the price for that sin so that any who trust in Him can have life. Amos chapter 5. In his first few verses, we read how God mourns and He grieves the death of His people because of their sin. For He knows in His justice that sin must be accounted for. And the only payment for that sin that will suffice for turning all that unrighteousness around is death. But praise be to God for His mercy and His grace. Because God sent His own Son not to condemn us, even though He was the only perfectly sinless one and righteous one, the only one who could judge us. But God didn't send Him to condemn us. God sent Him as a spotless lamb to be a sacrifice to take away the sins, that penalty of death, take away the sins of the world and the penalty of death so that any who trust in Him can have life. God knows your life is full of sin, just like the people in Israel. He knows that your life is full of sin and as much as this passage is about mourning for His people Israel, it's also a pleading for us today as his children to, to trust in him the only hope for sinners like us Jesus paid the price in death 
so that we so we could have what God really wants, which is eternal life, which is only possible, not by our means, but through the precious, precious blood of Jesus Christ. Let's just pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your love for us, which is without end. I thank you, Lord, for the times in which you see our sin and you see all the injustice and you see how far away from you we have come as your church and you don't respond in in anger and wrath. You respond in tears and in mourning as it breaks your heart to see us suffer and struggle through the consequences of sin. And you, God, forever are calling us back to you, calling us back to you in worship, calling us back to you with our, our, our justices, with, with our courts, with our government, with our society. God, help us as a church today. Help us as individuals today, as your children. Help us to look in our heart and to see how we may have drifted from your way, to see how we may have been influenced more by the sinful society than by the righteousness of you, our great God. And God, help us as your church today to repent. Help us, God, to not only be willing to to acknowledge the wrong that we've done and to ask you to forgive us, but God, help us to commit as your people to turning from our wicked ways and being faithful to follow you, our great God. God, lead us to this last song. If there are those here this evening who, God, they just feel you challenging their heart and life, let them come down and just pray to you. Let them give their lives to you now. Let them recommit themselves, God, to following in your ways. For we all sin and we all fall short of your glory. And there's forgiveness and there's mercy and the grace because of the precious gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the mercy we find at the cross. Thank you for the mercy we find here today for any who will turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.